Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. What you're about to hear is a talk I gave last Sunday at the IBMC, International Buddhist Meditation Center, Sunday service. And the talk was focused on the five precepts. I hope you find it interesting. I hope you find it useful. So with no further introduction, my talk on the five precepts at the International Buddhist Meditation Center. So this is a, an important topic for us as Buddhists or people interested in Buddhism because um, we had nobody come down the mountain for us holding these tablets in their hands saying, children, I have defined for you how to live in this world. And, um, and, and the Buddha uh, uh, understood the importance of deities in his time. But he also, I think, understood more perhaps than we do in our technolo- technological age, the, uh, the ebbs and flows of nature. And so karma, the cause, uh, and vipaka, the consequence of the cause, becomes an important concept for Buddhists. Um, it defines for us how we need to live in the world skillfully if we choose to uh, reduce and eventually end our suffering. Um, We also lack uh, justice uh, because we lack a divine lawgiver. So we can look at the world and say it's, uh, gosh, I really wish that person would go to jail because um, they were so unskillful and caused so much suffering. And, And yet, as a Buddhist, at some level, we really don't even have to worry about that because it will be taken care of for us by the law of cause and consequence. So we can rest assured, if even in this lifetime, Libby is pardoned, <laughs> in, in some future lifetime, uh, he will get his comeuppance. <laughs> So when I, when I looked at the five precepts the first time, I, I realized four of them were in the Eightfold Path. Uh, it only missed one. And, and the Eightfold Path, for uh, some of you who may have forgotten or are confused about it, uh, can be divided into three categories, personal discipline, mental purification, and wisdom. And the first category, personal discipline, would have right speech and right action. Now, karma uh, is uh, composed of three parts. We have intention, speech, and action. And what the five precepts, or those path factors found in the personal discipline category, uh, do in a very real way is change our karma. So, uh, our job as a Buddhist may not be to be good or to avoid being bad, but our job may be simply to change our karma. And this Buddhist practice that some of us have decided to uh, take on uh, is designed in a very real way to change our karma. I like to say it's composed of two parts, precept practice and meditation practice. And precept practice is designed to change what we say and what we do. And meditation practice is designed to change how we think. So the five precepts are to avoid taking life, 
to avoid taking what is not given, to avoid sexual misconduct, to avoid lying, to avoid consuming intoxicants. Now again, the first four are found in the Eightfold Path, but that last one was probably added because of the culture that the Buddha lived in, and appropriately so, the culture we live in. Uh, intoxication seems to be something, oh, it's okay, it's okay, he's, he's come to listen. He needs to be reborn as a human being next lifetime. And the Dharma is the only way he's going to do it. <laughs> so it seems to be uh, something, uh, this intoxication thing seems to be something that a lot of people uh, like to do. It seems to be in our genes and chromosomes. We like getting high. We like changing our reality. We like seeing the world in a different way. And, uh, and I guess since we figured out how to ferment, people have been consuming intoxicants. And now, of course, because of our technology, we have wonderful chemicals we can assemble and put in very usable pill form, you know, to alter and change our consciousness. So, as a Buddhist, let me start with that fifth precept. What, what's the problem with having a little wine? Just the other night I saw on the news that uh, another study came out saying wine is, has medicinal qualities. That you really should, if you can, have a glass of wine once a day because it seems to do wonders for the heart and maybe the attitude as well. You know? Uh, and, and I'm thinking, yeah, there are qualities. There's really... Nothing wrong, perhaps, from a physical standpoint of having a little wine or a little beer or whatever. But, but the problem for Buddhists would be the fact that it steals our wisdom. Even a little wine steals our wisdom. And a lot of, a lot of wine or beer makes us an imbecile. You know, and we end up doing really stupid things and creating a lot of suffering for ourselves and others. So when I'm at UCLA speaking to the students, I, I, I marvel at the education they're getting and how quick and smart they are. Um, but then I think about the parties they might go to. And in, in the matter of a few hours, their whole education is put on hold. And they can't recall anything uh, worthy of conversation by the end of the party. It's down to four or five word sentences. <laughs> and then let's go out and eat, you know. So... I see the problem with intoxication as um, limiting us. And, and Buddhism, more than anything else, is designed to make us free. And we can't be free if we're intoxicated. The first precept, not to take life, is an important precept because the job of uh, Buddhism is to wake us up. It's not to make us perfect. And I mentioned this last time I gave a talk. Uh, the Buddha considered all humans to be already perfect. And that's such a wonderful message that's buried deep in suffering and the end of suffering. Um, but he felt we were already perfect. We just had a little bit too much lust, greed, hatred, and delusion. And so the Buddhist path is a path of renunciation. It's getting rid of the things that prevent us from awakening to our innate perfection. If you take a life, a human life, you may prevent that person from achieving their full realization in this lifetime. Now, if they're a Christian, they don't have another chance. That's it. So they're looking at eternity. And they may not have done enough work yet to uh, 
go to the big reward in the sky. But thankfully for them, there's something called uh, grace. And so that may take the place of hard work in this lifetime. For a Buddhist, we don't have that option. No one is going to um, redeem us. No one's going to give us a second chance at heaven. Uh, our karma, the thing we're trying to change, the, the very qualities we're trying to transform, will continue into our next lifetime. Now, for a Buddhist, as most of you know, uh, the Buddha said we uh, don't have a soul. That's how it was initially translated. But I think a more current translation would be we are not the soul. That there is something that could be conceived or thought of as a soul or a self or an ego, and it has a function. But it doesn't seem to travel with us from lifetime to lifetime. The one thing that does travel with us, the one thing that does transmigrate, would be karmic energy. And if we have not had enough time to work on our karmic energy, transforming it, well, in our next lifetime, we may have a more difficult start than in this lifetime. We may end up in Pacoima instead of West L.A. And think of the uh, hurdles we have to jump over there. So even if we don't achieve enlightenment in this lifetime, we may have a better rebirth in the next lifetime because we have been practicing these five precepts, and the first one in particular. Uh, this past Thursday, I found myself at Peninsula High School in Palos Verdes, speaking to a comparative religions class. And I was speaking about the five precepts, and so I challenged everybody in the class to, to accept the first precept, even if they weren't a Buddhist to see if they could live by that, to avoid taking life. And I said, one of the easiest ways to start is right at the top of the food chain. So today I said to them, make a vow to yourself not to kill any human beings and leave this classroom with confidence that you may be able to get through the whole day without taking one life. And I bet you most of them did it. <laughs> and... And then I said, when you get really good at not killing human beings, then, then make it a little more difficult. Say to yourself, today I'm not going to kill any lions or tigers or bears. And go out that front door and with confidence go into the world, knowing chances are you will make it. When you get really good at that, then the big challenge is not to kill any cockroaches, ants, mosquitoes or flies. And that is so difficult. Because oftentimes we don't even think about killing them. We simply extinguish their life in one fell swoop and on to the next thing. So it's waking up to the fact, I suppose, when we accept the first precept, that all life has a value, if we can see it or not. And, and our job is to let that life work itself out and not interfere with that. So the first precept is a, a, a very... A good place for a Buddhist to start. If you can only keep that one, this planet will be a much better place to live in. Or on, I should say. Second precept, not to take what is not given. Well, um, ownership can be confusing to a lot of us. And now we have eBay. And it's so much fun to go on eBay and buy stuff. Because you get to bid, and there's that, that, that rush of getting close to the end of the auction, and will someone come in and steal it from me at the last moment, and should I make a higher bid? And 
and then finally it's yours and you get this email confirmation saying you are now the owner of this product and it will soon be sent to you by FedEx or UPS and they give you a tracking number and you can watch it cross the country as it comes to your door and then finally the doorbell rings and it's yours and you're holding it in your hand and you and you open the box and there's this receipt that says you are now the owner and how wonderful that is something else to clean something else to protect and put away for future use perhaps or just to marvel at and not use it at all but but this idea of ownership really gets in in the way of of us being free that if we own anything, even ourselves, we are in a prison. And, and so the Buddha really encouraged simplicity in his message that, that our job as a Buddhist is, is to live as lightly as we can, and acquire as few items as we can. And if we find we have a lot of items, well, maybe we should use eBay to get rid of the excess we have rather than a storage locker in West L.A. You know, storage lockers are going up everywhere. We have so much stuff. And as I mentioned in my last talk, right now, today in America, there are 600 million charge cards being used annually. Now, that's a whole lot of people acquiring things without even having enough money to do it and going into debt for who knows how long. Having said all that, when somebody takes something we think we own we suffer. We feel uncomfortable. And ultimately, of course, it will be taken away from us. One day, we won't be able to find it. One day, it'll be broken. One day, a new version will come out, and we'll want that instead. Or maybe one day, somebody will just steal it, because they wanted it more than we did. But one day, it will no longer be in our possession. So if we're attached to that eBay purchase and we and it ends up missing, we're going to be very disappointed. We're going to suffer. We're going to feel uncomfortable. So can we use the things we think we own? A Zen master was asked one time, isn't it true that the Buddhist path is a path of giving everything up you own? And the Zen master thought for a moment and said, oh no, I don't think it works that way. I think the Buddhist path is understanding everything you own will be taken away from you. <laughs> and, and so as a Buddhist, we, we try to keep our hands open. So people offer, and we don't close and cling to it, and people take away, and we don't close and cling to it. And as long as our hand is open, we will suffer less. Sexual misconduct is the third precept, and, and it's so much fun for me to bring this up in a high school because they're in that state of confusion and identity crisis and trying to define themselves in all the many ways we do. And, and in L.A., we have very few restrictions, you know, uh, on what we're allowed to do because uh, uh, we have a right to find our path. We have a right to define who we really are. And people will oftentimes go to great lengths to challenge their identity. So, what did the Buddha say? And, and after reading quite a bit, uh, and in particular Bhikkhu Bodhi's book, The Eightfold Path, this is the conclusion I've come to. Uh, the Buddha implied in everything he said that sexual activity will never ever satisfy the desire for sex. 
And in Buddhism, it's the desire, not the sexual activity, that's the problem. So if that's the case, then we could, could have sex maybe a couple thousand times, if not more, in our lifetime and never be ultimately satisfied. Always looking for the correct partner or position to finally get that ultimate sense of satisfaction and always ending up not finding it. So, in Bhikkhu Bodhi's little booklet, The Eightfold Path, he says this about sexual activity. He said, the Buddha encouraged lay people not to have sex with people who are married, not to have sex with people who are engaged, not to have sex with children, and not to have sex with people against their will. And those are the four things the Buddha said to lay people about having sex. Now, to monks and nuns, he said many more things, and we have volumes of his teachings. And, and of course, the ideal is not to have sex at all. Now, why would that be the ideal? It, you know, it sounds like such a radical uh, way of living your life, and it would, of course, end up in the demise of humankind if we all stopped having sex. Thankfully, we don't have that many volunteers. <laughs> you know? So, so, so we have plenty of people who are willing to give up their celibacy for the good of humankind. Uh, but when you look at the life of the Buddha, he was, you know, he was a young man and he had a concubine and he had dancing girls and playing flutes and lutes and all sorts of wonderful things. And he got married at 16 and he had his first child at 29. And then he left his family and went into the forest to seek liberation. And at the end of those six years, he achieved nirvana. He woke up to his perfection. And at that point, from that point on, he never had sex again. And it wasn't because there was anything wrong with sex. It was simply he had ended all desire. And in ending all desire, he had ended desire for sex. So I guess the question would, would come up, well, would you have sex if you had no desire to have sex? And the answer is probably no. You know, you could really utilize that time and money in much better ways. So that's the third precept, to, to be more skillful in our sexual activity, because desire can never be satisfied indulging in sexual activity. The, the fourth precept is um, not to tell a lie. Now, if you're a Buddhist monk or nun, it's more specific. It's not to tell a lie about your spiritual attainments. But if you're a layperson, it's pretty much just not to tell a lie. And for me, the problem with lying is this. It, it undermines the reality of the person being lied to. And if you've been watching the news lately... A wonderful story came out uh, just, I think it was Friday, where the FBI has been lying to us. They have been um, actually getting more personal information that they, than they admitted to. And, and, and I see the credibility now being challenged of the FBI. And, and it all stems from lying. It all stems from creating things that are untrue in the world and then being found out. So I think the biggest problem with lying is it undermines reality. And reality is such a difficult thing to grasp anyway. One of my favorite TV shows in the 70s was Mork and Mindy. 
And Mork used to say in every episode, reality, what a concept. <laughs> and I used to chuckle because I thought everybody knew what reality was. I mean, after all, I knew what reality was. And then as I matured a bit, I realized that was a very profound statement to make. Because what is reality? And we all have our own. At the Buddhist Catholic Dialogue, um, there was a uh, held at Loyola Marymount a couple months ago. There was a uh, gentleman from the Ropa Institute speaking about uh, spirituality and cognitive science and how they could link together and how they might have some difficulties as well. Well, being the rascal that I am, I raised my hand for a question. And I said, you know, right now, being a Buddhist, we're really lucky because even quantum physics seems to validate Buddhism at some level. And everybody really enjoys using that example. And then I said, but you know, the, the whole thing about science, it's, it's ever-evolving. And perhaps one day, quantum physics won't validate Buddhism. So does that mean that Buddhism doesn't work? What do you think? <laughs> and he paused a moment, and he said, well, I think there's scientific truth, and I think there's personal truth. And Buddhism is an empirical perspective. Buddhism is a truth that needs to be tested and proven true in your own life and your own experience. So no matter what science says, Buddhism has worked now for 2,500 years and will probably work for another 2,500 years because humans haven't changed that much. We still have a whole lot of lust, a whole lot of greed, a whole lot of hatred, and a whole lot of delusion. So truth can be relative and truth can be ultimate and if you remember the ultimate truth in Buddhism is that all things are interconnected and interdependent all things are conditional so most of the truth we'll, we deal, deal with is simply relative truth what's the truth today what's the truth of my life and how do I define it and perhaps how do I defend it when people are engaged in that truth-seeking, it seems to me, most of their life. But it's ever-changing and arbitrary, I have come to realize. Back in the 70s, when we had our first oil crisis and prices were going up, we had odds and evens. And I was an odd, appropriately so. <laughs> and then I noticed that the freeway speed had been reduced to 55 miles an hour, which was really difficult to abide by because it's so fun to go 80. You know, but it really eats up the gas. And I saw for the first time clearly that even speed limits are arbitrary. They can change them anytime they want. And if you go to the California desert, you might get be able to do 75. In Montana, maybe 80, 85, depending on what the powers to be feel are appropriate for that stretch of road. So I'm looking at life and I'm thinking, yeah, most of the laws are by consensus. What's best for the group? and subject to change without notice. <laughs> so as we seek out our personal truth, I don't think, I think we should stay away from being distracted, you know, by the, by the truth of our community, uh, by the truth of science. What did the Buddha say? And what tools did he give us to, to discover our own truth? And finally, we come to intoxication, which I mentioned before. So those, those five precepts are the guidelines a Buddhist needs to live by if they want to be free and if they want to be skillful. If they don't want either of those things, they can disregard those five precepts. 
and go out and live their life any way they want to. But chances are they will suffer more. And people around them will suffer more as well. By simply holding the five precepts, a Buddhist is invited to live in any community. Those standards are actually higher than most communities in existence today. How cool is that? Most communities seek out the lowest common denominator. How can we all live together in the easiest fashion? But Buddhism says, no, no, that's not good enough. That still causes too much suffering. Let's have a higher standard. And then if you really want to challenge yourself, take the precepts of a monk or a nun and live at those standards. What you find is the more things you can't do, the more things allow you to be free. Those things you can't do are your chance to be free. Free from having to decide what is right and what is wrong. Free from having to decide what is the truth of your reality. And free from having to decide, um, am I going to do it today? I sometimes think of it as being a safety cord, you know, like they have in the, the trains and it's going towards the end of the cliff and you pull the cord and in those cartoon animations, it would all screech and stop just before you get there. Well, the, the five precepts for me are the cord that we can all pull as a Buddhist when we're in a situation we're confused about. And those five precepts can remind us what our path is, the path of wisdom and the path of compassion. Having said that, I want to thank you for coming and listening to what I had to say today and enjoy this beautiful summer day in March. <laughs> thank you. Well, that does it. That was my talk at the International Buddhist Meditation Center on the five precepts. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit kusala.info. That's K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. If you'd like to download some free e-books on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. If you'd like to listen to some more podcasts, you can find them also at dharmatalks.info. That's dharmatalks.info. Well, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering. <laughs>